Well, it's kind of embarrassing when a person does what you're going to do in 25 minutes and she does it in two. Before we uh, jump in this morning, I just want to acknowledge something. I want to just acknowledge that we are, as you know, still dealing with uh, changes and restrictions and all around the, the pandemic, and we are constantly uh, looking into those, uh, talking about them as we plan for fall events, and we do this uh, as a way to better love our neighbors and to better care for and love one another. And not a week goes by that we don't talk about uh, whether some change needs to be made or, or that sort of thing. Um, and along those lines, it's no secret that our nation, our community, even people in our congregation, that we're all over the spectrum in terms of comfort levels with uh, not wearing masks or less uh, social distancing measures. And I want us to love each other well in that, too, and simply uh, choose not to be judgmental towards people who see things differently than you do. I know we can do it, but sometimes I just want to be able to encourage us to do it because the society in which we live is not encouraging us to do that. So let's love each other in that way. And along those lines, uh, speaking to those of us who are more comfortable without masks and uh, aren't quite as strict in the social distancing, uh, can we just be aware that not everybody in the room here at ECC is where we are uh, in that comfort level and aren't uh, necessarily looking for a lot of hugs or handshakes or for you to stand within six feet of them? Just be aware of that and be sensitive as as a way that we can continue to, to love one another in the body of Christ. Thanks. All right, jumping in. Um, We have been talking about presence. We've been been talking about uh, our our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence. And we're going to continue that conversation this morning. Um, In my experience, and uh, I think also I could make a case for it throughout history, um, people of faith at different times uh, in history have uh, been tempted to pull back all faiths tempted to pull back and hunker down because it's difficult in the world, or we want to protect ourselves from being corrupted by, uh, by the, the evil forces in the world or whatever. We may be able to build a literal mission compound that we hide in. The problem is, of course, that's not the way God does it. That's not the way God is related to us. And so I want to ask the question this morning as we look at this third touchstone, as we look at it, to ask the question, what did God do and what should we learn about how God did it and what God did. My first day in my Old Testament class in seminary, my much-beloved professor, Dr. Fred Holmgren, presented us with a chart. It was a six-foot-tall chart, two feet wide, and very strange-looking. At the top, it said this, Histomap, 4,000 years of world history relative power of contemporary states, nations, and empires. And all the way down this, you see it starts at about 2000 BC, goes all the way down to the early 1900s because the, uh, the, the thing was published in 1931, so that's as far as it goes. And you have these blobs that appear and expand and shrink and run different lengths of, uh, of the chart to show you the relative power and influence each of these nations or states had throughout these 4,000 years. <clears throat> And so over on the, the right there, you can see that's China, and that one runs all the way through the 4,000 years. It does this, but it's always there, no surprise. The left here, you see Rome, the Romans, big old blob there for a little while, maybe a long while. But by about 1500 uh, A.D., they, they kind of just disappear off the histomap. And then down at the bottom... You see the blue coming in over here on the left. The United States begins to gain power and flourish 
down into the beginning of the 20th century. And if the map were here today, it would continue all of those things as well. So here's what would happen. Fred Holmgren would show us this, this, I assume he did this in every Old Testament class. He would show this map and he would say, now, I'll try to copy his voice as best I can. (laughs) It was very unique. Uh, And he would say, well, when when God wanted to speak to people, when God wanted to reveal himself to, to human beings, which, which people did he choose? Surely he would choose the powerful people, the influential people. That's what God would do. Maybe God chose these people. He'd point to a big old blob. He'd say, they're strong, they're powerful. Surely God will choose them. And then he would say, ah, but no, God did not choose them. Oh, well, then maybe God would choose these people. He'd pick another blob. They're strong, they're powerful. Yes, I am sure God will make his name known to the world through these people. And then Fred would go, no, he didn't choose them either. And then he would get this wry look on his face. He might even chuckle. He'd say, so whom did God choose when he decided to reveal his character and his ways to the world? And he would point and he would say, He chose these people, the Hebrews, about four or five in from the left there. The Hebrews, a small and almost inconsequential group of people when you look at the sweep of things. God chose them. They are inconsequential. They have a little power for a a moderate amount of time. They do have some influence, but they really don't have much at all when you look at the whole map. I'll show you kind of a big picture. You can see the little little square up there, the rectangle, they're right in there. That's where they are. And he would say, God chose the, the small people, the inconsequential people who did not have all the power. That's where God revealed himself to humanity. These people are a blip on the radar when you look at the whole map. They're the Bay City Rollers of empires. <laughs> if you don't get the Bay City Rollers reference, it's because my point is correct. My sister loved them, but it didn't last long. If I said the Beatles, we'd be talking about Rome, or you too, right? That would be Rome. But the Hebrews were the Bay City Rollers. They just didn't have much power. And yet, that is how God works. God does not hunker down and say, I'm going to protect this. Or God does not choose the big power and say, we're going to really bowl people over with this. God chooses the inconsequential, the small And he inserts himself into that situation and he hides in plain sight and he starts small. Small like a small people in the scheme of things and small like taking on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus, the son of a refugee poor couple living in a backwater town of Nazareth. Nazareth, the kind of place that when people heard it, they would say, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's where God begins to work. And so we continue this week in our look at our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence. This week, we're looking at presence, as you heard earlier. We are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. We are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption. God is present to the world. God was present to the world in the Hebrews when he chose them. God was present to the world 
in the life and the teachings and the miracles and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And God can be present to the world, in the world, in and through you and me, this congregation and congregations and followers of Jesus all the world over and throughout history. This is who God is. This is how God does things. He reveals himself to the world through you and me. And we are called to be present to the world, and we're going to talk more about what that means using a couple of parables. Before we get to that, however, Jesus in the section that we're in, we're kind of in the middle of it in chapter 13 of Matthew, tells a lot of parables, explains a couple of parables, but he also teaches a bit about why he speaks in parables, and that's important for us. So early on in the chapter, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? This is verses 10 through 13. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, I don't know about you, but over the many years I've encountered this passage, it sounds to me like Jesus is saying, I speak to them in parables so they won't get it. I speak to them in parables to hide the truth. Because this is what, he'll say in a minute, Isaiah said was supposed to happen. I will speak to them in parables so that they can't get it unless God supernaturally reveals it to them. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think there's something more interesting going on. We'll get to that, but let's fill out the context right after this. Jesus, speaking of the crowds who have gathered around or listening to him, he says this, In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Again, it sounds like what Jesus is doing is saying, I'm going to hide the truth. They're going to have to have it supernaturally revealed to them before they're going to understand what I'm trying to tell them. That's what it sounds like, unless we look at it a little more carefully and we see that actually what Jesus is saying is, when Isaiah said this, he was not making a prophecy, he was lamenting, in a prophetic way, the nature of human beings, the nature of the people of God, they were hard-hearted. They were calloused. They were unable to hear what God was really saying to them. They were unable to perceive the truth of what they were seeing. This is who they are. If they weren't like that, they would turn and repent and God would heal them. But because they're like that, Jesus says, I'm going to speak to them in a way that will get their attention. I'm going to speak to them in parables. Because a parable will work where flat out confronting somebody to their face does not work. Put it another way. Jesus doesn't teach in parables to hide the truth. Jesus teaches in parables to reveal the truth. Jesus doesn't teach in parables to hide the truth. Jesus teaches in parables to reveal the truth because a parable is an image, a metaphor that burrows into your psyche and begins to speak to you. I don't remember who it was, unfortunately, but one person uh, likened parables to the way one poet, I wish I could remember her name, described poetry. They are fictional gardens with real toads. 
I think that's true of parables. There's, it's fictional, it gets to you, but there's something in them that's going to work on you and wiggle around and get to you and challenge you and change you and transform you. Parables do what confronting someone face-to-face cannot do oftentimes because we're hard-hearted. So if a parable works its way, it transforms us from the inside out. We get it. We see it more deeply. Think of 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has taken advantage of Bathsheba. And then he's murdered her husband to cover up his sin. And Nathan the prophet finds out that this is what has happened. But Nathan the prophet doesn't go to David and say, Aha! This is what you've done. Nathan goes to King David and says, Let me tell you a story. And he tells him this elaborate story. We won't go over it now. It's in the Bible app live event if you want to read it. But He tells him this elaborate story in 2 Samuel 12. And David is undone. It gets into him, and he sees the injustice in the parable, and then Nathan says, you are the man. You did this. And it leads David to confess his sin. The parable gets in us and works on us. The rabbis knew this. The rabbis used to say that, uh, you know, until people started using parables, the people of God didn't understand the Jewish law. They didn't get it. But when Solomon and others began to use parables, then the people of God understood what the law required of them. Parables work on us. They move us toward the direction of truth. They reveal something to us in a way perhaps it might not otherwise be revealed to us. The message translation gets at this when it translates Jesus as saying this. That's why I tell stories to create readiness to nudge people to nudge the people toward a welcome awakening. In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it, listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. So I teach in parables. I teach in parables. There's something about the nature of parables that is present to us in the way that we are called to be present in the world, and we'll get to that in a minute. We're coming back to all this, this teaching on why Jesus teaches in the parables, but I just wanted to set the stage for a minute. Let's get on to our passage for this morning, verses 31 to 33, we'll start there. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So a mustard seed is a very small seed. Mustard seed grows into a plant, uh, some would say a shrub. It's nowhere called a tree. It's nowhere called a tree. So why does Jesus use the word tree? A couple of reasons. One, in the ancient world, a tree was an image or a metaphor for a kingdom or an empire. So Jesus is trying to say, as the people listening to him, as the people who read Matthew's gospel would know, oh, He's trying to give us a picture of what it can grow into, a kingdom, an empire. It will far exceed our expectations. It will start small in Jesus or in us, but it's going to grow. It's going to be a force to be reckoned with. Another reason he might be using the word tree is what he often does in parables is he exaggerates. He uses hyperbole to get your attention, to surprise you if you're listening. Wait, that's not a tree, that's a shrub. Well, you have to think about it. It's about the impact, it's about the size, it's about the abundance of the kingdom. One day, this small thing that began in Jesus will grow into an empire that is seen by all. 
a city set on a hill, the light of the world. There's more going on here. Um, the flour says about 60 pounds of flour. That's about 10 gallons of flour. And if you were to make that into bread, it would feed between 100 and 150 people, which is something a woman, one woman in that day and age probably never did, was to try to feed 100 to 150 people by herself. So again, Jesus is expressing this abundance, right? And the impact is almost wasteful. It's so much. This is what the kingdom is going to do. This is how the kingdom is designed to work. It's designed to spread and to grow and to influence and to change. Something else going on, though. The word translated in the NIV as mix, she mixed the yeast or the leaven into the, the dough, is actually the word hid. Hid. So the common English Bible says it this way. He told another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, which a woman took and hid in a bushel of wheat, a bushel of wheat flour, until the yeast had worked its way through all the dough. This, this hiddenness is key. I wish they'd kept that in the NIV. It tells us something that we need to know. Again, start small and it grows big. Past our expectations. No, no one would have thought that like, this small band of disciples would result in this happening all over the world on Sunday mornings. No one would have thought that when, when God entered into the world of this small group of people called the Hebrews, that it would result in the birth of the Messiah and later become the largest religion in the world as of 2021, 2.4 billion adherents. This is what the kingdom does. It is in the nature of mustard seeds to be planted in the ground, to grow roots, and to become a large plant, a shrub, possibly eight feet tall. It is in the nature of yeast to give off oxygen, I mean, not oxygen, carbon dioxide, and to cause the, the dough to rise. It is the nature of the kingdom of God to grow and to expand. And it will do that if we let it. We can try to do violence to it, and people have, but that doesn't stop it. It continues to grow. No one would have expected these disciples, uneducated, common men, to launch a movement that results in that. 2.4 billion adherents. This is the way of the kingdom. And when you and I have the kingdom within us, when you and I are part of the kingdom, we take and we are hidden in the world among our neighbors, among our coworkers, among our friends, and we are like a living parable, hidden and doing its work. We don't have to hit people over the head with it. We just allow the Spirit of God and the presence of God to work in and through us. And so Jesus gives us these two images so we might know that it starts small, it grows, and it becomes magnificent and powerful and broad and deep and beautiful. Jesus then finishes off this section in verses 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. This time he's quoting from the psalm, Psalm 72, I think. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Here's this theme of hiddenness again. The kingdom of God is hidden in the Hebrew people. The kingdom of God is hidden in the Son of God. 
conceived within the womb of a poor peasant girl. The kingdom of God is hidden in us, wherever God hides us. But God has designed it to spread and to grow beyond us and with other people. And when we talk about presence, friend, we are talking about more than just being there, like Kristen said. We're not just talking about being in the room. We're talking about being present, paying attention. Being present to God, yes, but also being present and mindful to people, to what God is doing in their lives. Being available to be a person through whom God can work and move in their lives. Have you ever been in a meeting and you've been looking at your phone and someone says, hey, could you be present for a minute? Perhaps a family reunion? That's what we mean. Be present to what's going on around you. Present to God, present to the people. And so I want to ask you, where and among whom has God hidden you as a potential living parable through which the kingdom can grow and expand? I'm going to advertise this again. It will come back to it over and over. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to go to blesseveryhome.com and sign up. There's an app now for your phone that makes this way easier, in my opinion. Uh, You can sign up for emails or notifications about the neighbors right around you. You can pray for one, two, five a day. You can pray one day a week, five days a week. Whatever you want, they will notify you and tell you, here's who you should be praying for. They will even give you little suggested prayers. You don't have to make of this a 30 minutes of intercession for your neighbors. Just begin to pray for them and watch how God might use you, perhaps, to be present for them. And as we said last week... Every single one of these touchstones, welcome, transformation, and presence, has the title for the sermon, Be Like Jesus. When we welcome others, and when we welcome one another, we are being like Jesus. When we are on the road to transformation, we are becoming like Jesus. And when we are being present in the world with the kingdom of God, we are being like Jesus in the world. We want to strive to be like Jesus. Early this year, January, somebody sent me a picture. I don't remember who sent it to me. I just saved it because I thought it was awesome. It's a New Year's resolution. This year, I want to be more like Jesus. Hang out with sinners, upset religious people, tell stories that make people think, choose unpopular friends, be kind, loving, and merciful, merciful, take naps on boats. (laughs) Every single one of those is about being present, and I would say even the last one, though it's funny, because when we're present to God, we're present to others, we're not anxious. Somebody, somebody says that NAP stands for non-anxious presence. Jesus is so at peace with who God is, if you remember the story, he's asleep in the bottom of the boat during a storm, that he's not worried about it. We can be present in all these ways. We can bring the kingdom into our world in all these ways. We need to be like Jesus. We are sent into the world as agents of change, and redemption, and we send one another into the world as agents of change and redemption. And hopefully, our hope and our prayer is that as we live out the presence of God in the places where we have been hidden, friends, that other people will come to faith, that our lives will will bear fruit, fruit that will last, as Jesus calls it, which is why we have a piece of fruit hanging from a branch in the icon. We are sent in the world that we might bear fruit fruit. Welcome, transformation, and presence. Just before I close in prayer, I, I want to invite you, uh, and some of you, I, we sent a letter out, you, most of you, maybe some of you have gotten it, I don't know how fast the mail is these days, but 
asking and inviting you uh, in the room, online, whoever you are, to join us in worship next week, is I am going to talk about some of my experiences in the past year, and particularly on sabbatical. I'm not, I don't want to oversell this. I'm not going to give some incredible grand vision and blow everybody out of the water. I'm going to tell you what God, uh, part of what God did in me and what I think it means for us uh, using this passage, uh, Luke 5, 1 through 11. Um, I encourage you to read and pray over that. I encourage you to pray for me, to pray for us next week, and to join us as we launch a new series for the fall and hopefully talk a little bit about what God might be doing in us and through us uh, in the coming weeks, months, and years. Would you join with me as I close in prayer? God, we thank you that you did not leave us alone here, that you did not just send us out and cause us to be all by ourselves as human beings. You came and dwelt among us. You dwelt among us, Lord, in your people. You dwelt among us, Lord, in your Son. You dwell among us in your, in your Spirit and by your Spirit now. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that we would take this knowledge, this reality that describes how you relate with us, and that we would learn to re- relate with others in the same way. God, help us to step out into the world and to be present with our family members, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. Help us, O oh God, to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit and sensitive to the needs of those among whom you have hidden us. And may you receive all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.